This show is pre-recorded and furnished by Frasier Productions. Welcome to The Deciders with Renee Frazier. I'm Renee Frazier, the CEO and founder of Frazier Communications. We're the largest woman-owned and woman-led full-service communications firm in Southern California. And at Frazier, we work very hard to use communications to make the world a better place. That means changing behaviors like getting folks to see smoking or vaping and growing brands like Lexus and Hyundai working very hard to positively impact society, like the oral health campaign we're doing to reach families and children and a a lead paint remediation program that we're highlighting. Various clients and some of our largest clients uh, in the in uh, Fraser Communications include Lexus, New Vision, Hyundai, Jonathan Lewis Furniture, East West Bank, Ontario International Airport, which is a great alternative to LAX for those of you coming into or leaving Southern California. And then statewide, we do work for First Five California, the Talk, Read, Sing campaign, which has over 85% awareness across the state, I'm pleased to say. And our L.A. countywide efforts for public health issues like vaping and getting folks to helping people to understand how important it is to try to quit smoking. You know, the average is about 11 times you have to quit before you finally get off cigarettes. But we also do uh, vaping messaging to teens and then work really hard to uh, help parents to understand all the resources that are available to them, including the oral health campaign I mentioned. That's enough about Frasier. We do a lot of campaigns using digital, social media, as well as traditional media. And we really understand the importance of that mix to get results for our clients. But on the show, The Deciders, we feature CEOs and people who are leaders in their field, truly change agents in our mindset and in our communities. We ask people to share their insights and their stories. So I want to start today with a question. If you could find out whether or not you might develop Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease, would you want to know? I think it's a troubling and difficult question to answer, but most of us would probably say yes. Well, my guest today is a man who believes early detection of neurogenerative diseases, brain diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. If you early, if you detect these early, you can help people make lifestyle changes. And eventually there may even be drugs that can postpone the onset of these very difficult diseases. My guest is Dr. Russ Leibovitz, CEO and co-founder of Amprion, a company that's trying to revolutionize early detection and looking for treatments for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. He's a scientist and a research physician who worked in a variety of academic settings before he co-founded Amprion. Welcome to The Deciders, Dr. Leibovitz. Well, thank you, Renee. I'm really glad to be here today. I'm delighted that you you are here. You know, we have handled a lot of uh, healthcare clients. We've handled Cedar Sinai, St. John's, uh, UCLA Health System, and I've worked with a lot of researchers. I commend you for taking that into the private sector. Uh, I think it's important for uh, you know, us to have uh, physicians who take that research uh, beyond the academic world, if you will, into the applied setting. Uh, tell me about your company and how, why you want to help people detect these very difficult uh, age-related diseases. How do you do that, and why are you doing this? Sure. Well, you've sort of nailed it that we're looking at biomarkers for neurodegenerative diseases that allow early diagnosis. 
And so what Imprion has developed really through academic research originally is a set of technologies that allow us to detect really critical biomarkers of these diseases, not only ones that tell you if the disease is there, but ones that probably are driving the progression of these diseases. So we can detect these really early and we can detect them very accurately because these biomarkers are present at very low concentrations. And maybe later we'll talk about exactly why they're so difficult or have been so difficult until Amprion's technology. But we, with our technology, you know, we're unleashing a new capability to look at these diseases from a completely different point of view and look at them early. Yeah, I want to, that's interesting. I want to make the distinction between a genetic uh, predisposition. Uh, I know there are, uh, you know, genetic uh, physicians you could go to who help to uh, diagnose, uh, for instance, the BRCA gene. They determine whether or not you have a genetic predisposition. But when you speak of biomarkers, those are actually chemicals in the blood. Is that right? In the body? Well, they can be anywhere, but generally we detect them primarily in the blood. And for neurologic diseases, we often detect them in the cerebrospinal fluid because it's considerably closer to the brain. And the biomarkers we detect are proteins. And what we have learned and others about Alzheimer's and Parkinson's is that in most cases, 90% of these cases or more, this, these are not genetic diseases. There are genetic predispositions, but these are normal proteins that basically go rogue. And again, we can talk about what happens when they go rogue, but they're normal proteins that lose the normal regulatory path that they're on. They begin to take over cells. They make new copies of, them, of themselves and they spread from nerve cell to nerve cell along normal pathways. And suddenly a very rare event uh, that makes one of these proteins go rogue. And that's really the way we talk about it. Uh, they turn to the dark side, mm -hmm. and when they do that, they basically cause disease. And in a second, maybe we can talk a little bit about what we mean by going rogue. We'll talk about that in a second. I, I want to try to understand, when do you recommend people do the kind of testing that you're talking about? Well, to you know, our test is still, um, while it's being commercialized, it's still a year or so away from uh, first being offered to the public. So today, no one can call up and have it, but we do a lot of research and testing. And, you know, our ultimate goal here is to first show, and we've done this, uh, certainly in the academic literature, mm -hmm. we've shown that we can detect the disease at very, very high accuracy in patients who already have the disease, in patients who are at the earliest stages of disease, and in some cases in patients who don't know they have the disease. So, you know, we will do a study of known and unknown who are matched for age and race and gender. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, we found that we find people who are positive and clinically they are negative. And in almost every case, we find that four or five years later, those people came down with the disease. Ah, so now mm -hmm. we believe we can probably go back decades or more. Wow. That's very good to know that you're doing this that way. I, I Let me ask, where are you in the process of approval from the FDA? You mentioned a year. 
uh, before you'd be able to access it. I'm just curious, where are you in the process with the FDA? Yeah, so one, we're an in vitro diagnostic test. So there are several ways to be able to offer an in vitro diagnostic test done in a single laboratory to the public. Uh, All of it is done under the auspices of the FDA, but we'll probably first do this as something what's known as a CLIA lab. And that just follows under a federal guideline to have an independent lab that does a test that's validated. But with respect to the FDA, you know, we certainly work very closely with them. In May of this year, in 2019, we were granted breakthrough device designation by the FDA. And that's something that's given rarely for devices, or in this case, our device is an in vitro diagnostic test that has unusual potential in an area that has giant unmet needs. So we are, you know, we work closely with the FDA, but we think that we are approximately 12 to 18 months away from our first test, which really will be for a protein involved in both Parkinson's and certain dementias called alpha-synuclein. Got it. So dementias, certain dementias, uh, conditions, and then Parkinson's. And just to give people the kind of the broad scope, and then we'll go into detail about these rogue cells that we were talking about. Um, what kind of lifestyle changes and choices do you have and envision that would help people if they determine that they have this predisposition with these biomarkers? Yeah, well, you know, there's plenty of people doing research on this. And so we benefit from all of their work. And it's pretty clear now over the last two to three years that people who even who have early clinical stages of both Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and related neurodegenerative diseases, fortunately benefit from all the things that are good for heart disease and Mm. for other things. So uh, diet, exercise, uh, you know, Yoga, things that promote internal and external health seem to work here as well. And that's great. It would be terrible if the thing that worked best for these diseases was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. So it's, (laughs) it's great that we're very much aligned with things that make you healthy otherwise. Uh, and so th- th- that data is good. And maybe when you're in, ready in a few minutes, we could talk about even, you know, where we believe the pharmaceutical industry is heading with drugs that might be useful for treating people with early diagnosis. Yeah, I like that idea. But let, let's talk about this rogue phenomenon that you talked about yeah. first, because uh, you said an event that can go happen to you that makes things go rogue. Now, describe yeah. what you mean. Let's talk about so, that. So there are certain proteins in the body and a number of these in the brain that have a perfectly normal function and that they get made in a certain place, they get chaperoned to a place where they carry out their function, and then they, when they get replaced, uh, they get older and they get replaced with a new copy of the protein, they get chaperoned to be destroyed and recycled. Mm-hmm. And it's a very orderly process. But certain proteins in the brain very, very rarely go rogue. And what I mean by that is they take on new properties. They basically take on superpowers. They Mm. turn to the dark side. Mm. And there are three superpowers that these rogue proteins take on that really determine how they produce these diseases. The first is, 
instead of just having a normal function, when they go rogue and turn to the dark side, they become toxic. They can damage and yeah. kill cells, whereas yeah, yeah. the normal form of the protein only helps cells or is neutral. The second superpower that these take on when they go rogue is they take on the ability to seek out and coerce their brethren, the normal form of the protein in the cell mm. that's normally in this orderly process. They find them and they make them go rogue. Oh, so they trigger start, it with others. I got oh, it. Yeah. Okay. You know, you start with one and suddenly you have two, four, and suddenly the whole cell that this certain protein is taken over and they've all gone rogue and they're mm. now toxic. And the third superpower that may be the most important is they now get the ability in this rogue form to cross barriers between connected cells. Oh. So they move from one nerve cell to other connected nerve cells along established pathways. So a very, very rare event of one of these proteins going rogue over time leads to cells being filled with it and many cells and eventually whole regions of the brain being filled with these rogue proteins and those cells eventually get sick and die and that is the progressive nature of these neurodegenerative diseases. Degenerative diseases makes sense. Now is there any kind of um uh, you, you mentioned that these uh, there's a normal order with the proteins in the body and in the brain. Uh, this notion of uh, of being utilized and then recycled and removed, uh, chaperoned, as you said. Is there anything that would trigger this uh, these three superpowers? Is it uh, like stress or uh, uh, some kind of an incident in a person's life or the things that you see as indicators that, OK, this is why they started to go rogue? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, what we know is mostly epidemiologically, because mm. as you'll hear, these are processes that take many, many years once they start. But what we know from just observing people in general is that there are several different things that can happen to cause these diseases to start. One of the ones that's most obvious is people who have a lot of head banging and head injuries oh, when they're young right. have a much greatly increased probability of these diseases when they get older. And that suggests something happens when you're in your teens or 20s and 30s. But if the disease hits you in your 70s, it takes 30 or 40 years for, you know, this this event that once initiated and involving these rogue proteins to take over enough cells. We read about that for related to uh, concussions and football players, right? Exactly. Active but sports where players, people, yes. boxers, mm -hmm. but, you know, people who just have head contact. It doesn't all have to be concussions, just mm -hmm. minor head contact. That's certainly one way. There's a lot of data also that suggests that people have certain infections in the brain when they're young, particularly involving herpes viruses, mm -hmm. tend to have a much higher incidence of Alzheimer's and other dementias. And then there's also evidence that somehow our microbiome, the bacteria in our gut, that certain people at certain times when they're younger may have combinations of bacteria in their gut that increase their incidence of getting Parkinson's disease. Wow. And the, yeah, the data is really interesting. It, it's basically that if you just look at random, 
that people, and you look at a lot of patients, you find that people who had their appendix removed when they were relatively young, let's say before they were 20, have a much lower incidence of Parkinson's than people who did not. Hmm. Now, it could be random, but there's a lot of people in the study. And so you start to say, oh, well, something going on in the gut might be related. And then a second piece of data there for Parkinson's is that for whatever reason, rarely there's a nerve that connects from the gut to the brain. Mm -hmm. And there are certain people and certain problems that they have to have that nerve cut. Hmm. And people who have that nerve cut at relatively early ages also have a much lower incidence of Parkinson's, suggesting hmm. that at least some people with Parkinson's, it may start in the gut, move along those nerves, and then eventually get to the brain. So wow. I, I think the answer is there's lots hmm. of things that can cause, that can trigger this rogue protein to start in the brain. But once it does, it's self-perpetuating. You know, I, I think most people wouldn't think about the gut, you know, as a, as a starting place. That's really interesting for Parkinson's and uh, uh, these early incidents. What about the pharmaceutical companies? What are they doing? Because I know this is uh, obviously a high incidence of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's as we see the aging of the population. So a big opportunity oh, for them. It's it's a giant opportunity and it represents maybe, you know, sort of our biggest problem as we're starting to, you know, we've made a lot of progress with infectious disease that killed people at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, then we made it in the second half of the 20th century, a lot of progress with heart disease. Uh, we're making great progress with cancer. So, you know, the next frontier is going to be these neurodegenerative diseases. They're the only major diseases where the prevalence and the incidence is growing. Yeah. So there's a lot of interest, but these have turned out to be very, very difficult diseases to treat. Uh, they're complex. And in, in part of the problem is, as we've been alluding to in this discussion, you know, it may be that by the time you have symptoms, that may just be because you've destroyed so many nerve cells right. that it's hard to to make someone better. Or, or it's so manifesting right. itself more seriously. I think what you're suggesting is this takes years, as you said, so you may not notice the symptoms exactly. at some point, right? By the time you do, there's a very serious buildup of these proteins, evidently. Yes, the, mm -hmm. the brain is very plastic, meaning mm -hmm. that it, is, is, it can change. And if there's injury, it can reform connections so you don't notice it. So by the time you start to notice that you're having trouble moving or trouble thinking, that means you've been going through a very long process where the brain has been compensating for cells being lost for many years but you suddenly hit that point where there's no more compensation that works. And there's probably a very significant amount of damage at that point. So our goal should be as much as possible to hit these diseases early. Right. And we can talk about that when you're ready, because yeah. there's really a, a good logic for doing that. Let, let me ask you a couple of questions. We, we read about plaque in the brain or this white substance, in, particularly with dementia and Alzheimer's. Is this a manifestation of these uh, these proteins building up in the process you mentioned of their superpowers? Absolutely. So plaque uh, was the first to be recognized of these rogue proteins. And plaque is almost solely made up of a rogue protein called uh, A-beta amyloid. Hmm. And A-beta is a normal protein made in the brain 
but that it can misfold into this rogue form. And when it does, everything I described before, it spreads, it damages cells, it triggers actually the misfolding of other proteins that help kill cells. And ultimately, when you have lots and lots and lots of this rogue uh, A-beta amyloid floating around, it just coalesces and forms these very, very large aggregates which we know of as plaque and which we see under the microscope at a mm. very late stage in the disease. Well, what what could we be doing earlier then? What would you recommend? I mean, we talked about similar to heart disease, a healthy diet, yoga, exercise, not smoking. I suspect obesity is not a good thing as well, right? Staying fit. So all of these things clearly <laughs> help. Um, but nevertheless, you know, the numbers are too great. There are certainly people who are very fit and take care of themselves who still come down with these diseases. It's just part of biology. And so ultimately, I think what we can do is, um, you know, stay as healthy as possible. But at a certain point, we will have tools, and I hope that a significant number of these tools will be produced by Amprion, where we can screen for the three major rogue proteins that cause Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, and they're uh, A-beta amyloid, uh, in mainly in what we know as Alzheimer's. It leads to dementia, a uh, protein called tau which is also associated with Alzheimer's, but can be go rogue by itself without a beta and causes a number of both motor and cognitive dementia problems. And then alpha-synuclein, which is most closely linked with Parkinson's, but probably is found in 40% of dementia cases. So all of these proteins probably start to go rogue and misfold and proliferate in, you know, for people who get it in their 70s, probably in their 30s. Well, so if we knew, right, then early. the question is, what would we do? What would we do about it if you knew it earlier? What would be the action? Obviously, no head injuries, but beyond that, what could sure. people do to mitigate or slow down the process? Well, what's interesting is, you know, for the last 20 years, drug companies have been developing drugs against a beta amyloid for Alzheimer's. And unfortunately, none of them have worked. But the problem is not that they don't hit the misfolded a beta amyloid, but they just can't possibly hit it hard enough to reverse the changes when you already have the disease. So the question is whether or not if we had an early diagnosis, it may be that a drug that is not adequate to treat a disease once you have clinical symptoms is way more than adequate to treat that disease before you have symptoms. So earlier, hitting it earlier, that's why being screened for those proteins on a regular basis might be a part of good, healthy living, right? So it's Uh, 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 proactive. Yeah, so if you think about it, What we're really moving towards now is there are drugs out there that are being tested now or have been tested that you can show slow down the rate of progression of the disease, but don't necessarily reverse it. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, if, you know, you have someone in your family or you or me and we're, you know, in our 70s and suddenly we're losing these facilities 
someone saying, all right, I'm going to give you a drug. It's going to cost 100000 a year, and you're never going to get better, but you're going to get worse more slowly. Right. It, it's That's not so helpful. No, uh, no. Although my mother had dementia, and she had a drug like that to slow down the, pro- the progress yeah, when she was in her late had, 70s. Yeah, similar experiences. But if you're 40 or 50 mm. and you have no symptoms, actually you're at such an early stage of the disease that slowing it down by 5 or 10% is likely to push that disease way past 100 when mm. you would get it. It would be worth so, it. It definitely would the, be worth it then, right? Exactly. So the same drug that's out there today that isn't working for someone with full-blown disease might be extraordinarily effective. So we may already have these tools. So we encourage and we work with a number of drug companies. And, you know, we believe that they're developing tools that certainly are going to work early. And to do that, they're partnering with us so we can get the regulatory approval and the data to be able to look at people earlier and earlier and figure out exactly when the disease begins. And then we want to hit it early enough so that the drugs that are out there just push us again. We just want to get this disease when we're 130 for now. Make, uh, make, makes a lot of sense, uh, Dr. Leibovitz. This has been really helpful and very encouraging. You know, we call the show The Deciders, so I always ask, ask people at the last part of the show to tell us about a tough decision they've had to make. Can you share one with us? Sure. Um, you know, I, I feel like in what I do, there are tough decisions every day, and I want to keep it relevant to you know, what I do. And it's, you know, we have to make decisions in our business that, you know, what to, what to study and what not to study. Uh, you know, we have to go, we have to get um, funding for it. So there's always compromises that have to be made if you have a vision and you want to bring something through. So, you know, I'd say that at Amprion, there were several years when, you know, it was very tough to get funding, and we really had to shut things down almost and just keep them at a very minimal level, right. even though we knew we were sitting on something very important, and people weren't so convinced that these misfolded rogue proteins were so important in these diseases. Well, so I, I understand know, that kind of decision, of very difficult, yeah. but it may have worked out in the sense that the timing may be even better for Amprion, right? Oh, I think in the long run, being patient and just, you know, keeping things slow, even though we knew that we were sitting on something very important, you sometimes just have to wait for the world to come around to be aligned with you. That's right. Thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you to the listeners for spending time with us on The Deciders with these insights and these interesting facts about Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. You can hear our podcast on our website, thedeciders.com, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You'll be back next week, I hope, to hear us on The Deciders with Renee Frazier. This is Renee Frazier of Frazier Communications. To learn more about our work with digital social media and how we might help your business, visit us at FrazierCommunications.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great week ahead. This show is pre-recorded and furnished by Frazier Productions.